When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joe Flynn is the former senior vice president at the fourth largest bank in the nation. She's written for the Harvard Business Review, and she's a two-time leadership book author, achieving bestseller status with the New York Times, Amazon, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal. A longtime champion of women in leadership, she now leads leadership development and diversity, equity, and inclusion training efforts at Flynn Heath Leadership, a BPI group company. Tonight, we drink in top shelf leadership principles from someone who's molded over 16,000 leaders. This is straight talk you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Galen Bingham, and this is the Whiskey Jazz and Leadership Podcast. Cheers. All right, so let's get into a great conversation. And for this one, this is going to be really, really a a really special conversation. And for this one, I had to really make a decision as to which bottle to reach for. So I reached in the back of my case and I grabbed this bottle that I hardly ever break out because I can't find it anymore. And when I can find it, it's kind of crazy. They really want my firstborn and my left leg to get it. But I got this a couple of years ago. Well, let's face it. I got this almost a decade ago. This is Colonel E.H. Taylor barrel proof. You know, you might be able to find the, the small batch every now and then, but very seldom will you find the barrel proof. So I'm going to crack this open. And this is like sits inside of this little case. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, and, And the reason I'm reaching for this one is because Jill Flynn is really kind of that back of the case, top shelf, you know, that you only break out every once in a while. And uh, you've heard a little bit about her bio, but she's probably one of the people of the folks that I've talked to so far, probably the newest, like the newest person in my life. You've quickly become one of my more favorite people. So Jill, I just want to welcome you into this conversation because when you know, you and I met in a very, very professional setting, right? Around our passion for leadership development, coaching, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just, you know, very professional setting. But there was just something about my initial conversations with you that just really caused me to believe that this was something different. I wasn't expecting that kind of a relationship. 
I don't know that we look like two people that might end up hitting it off. And so I'm going to pour just a little bit of this barrel proof <laughs> E.H. Taylor and um, ask you to share a little bit about your background, a little bit more about your background. And let's just see where this conversation goes. Okay. You're one of my favorite people, too. And Galen and I have, uh, as he said, met over Zoom. We've never even met in person, ever. And we've worked together some now and really enjoyed each other and learned from each other. He's impossible to not be crazy about. So the feeling is mutual. Thanks for having me. And um, thanks for being such a wonderful work colleague. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, w- one of the things that kind of struck me is, you know, we, we were doing some pretty intense DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically around race. For me, you didn't fit the stereotype (laughs) or the image of someone I would have expected to not only be in this space, but to come with the kind of fire that you, that you come with. Yeah, I know. And really kind of woke me up. I'm like, hey, wait a second. So tell me a little bit more about your background and how did you get to a point where the Jill Flynn that, that I met really kind of became this force in this industry for causes that, like I said, I just would not have expected someone like you to have. Well, first of all, let me tell everyone what I'm drinking. I'm drinking <laughs> vodka. I told, I told Galen my only um, reluctance to do this podcast was that I don't drink whiskey, but I am a vodka girl. So um, I've got my vodka here, my Grey Goose. Great goose, no less. Great yes, goose, no of less. Great goose, yeah. Can't beat it. I am a older white woman. You all can't see me, but I'm an older white woman from the South, which is one of the reasons I don't look like I would be a champion force for diversity and inclusion, which I am and have been for most of my life. I grew up, I'll just be very brief, but I grew up in segregated Charlotte, North Carolina, back when it was segregated. I want to be clear that it's not that way anymore. It's a very progressive city now. But back when I was growing up, it was segregated. I was very privileged, didn't know it at the time, but just was, and never knew anyone of a different race as an equal. I'll put it that way. And I told Galen this story early on when we met, and I I don't know why I told him this, because I don't really tell this story. I told it to Galen, and then I told it a different time to both of my daughters who are grown, and they both said, Mom, we've never heard this story at all. But the story is, when I was about mm, 13, it was a Saturday in the summer, and I was at the country club with some of my friends, we were spending the day and we went into the restaurant there to get some hamburgers and order, order some lunch. And it was the, the higher end. I mean, there was a grill that you just went up and got it yourself. But this, we decided to, I don't know, for some reason to go into the, a little more, wasn't fancy, but it was a little more fancy. Anyway, <clears throat> so The waiter comes to the table. He's a black man, an older black man, dressed in a suit and tie, of course, and went around the table asking people what were their orders. 
So they were, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs or whatever it was. He came to me and I said, I'd like a hamburger, please, with French fries. He said, okay, you want a hamburger and French fries, any cheese? And I said, no, sir. And he stopped a minute and he looked at me and he bent down and said to me, you don't say sir to me. And then he went on. Well, I'm a lot older than 13. Many decades have gone by and I've never, ever forgotten that. And that was probably one of my earliest times of ever knowing that something was wrong. And I began noticing it. And I I felt, I just felt bad the whole time. I still feel bad when I tell that story. I just, um, anyway, I've never, I've never really reconciled it, I guess. So fast forward, I started my career actually as an educator and ended up teaching in a number of high schools that were desegregating and became uh, primarily Black and lived with the resistance of the white faculty. So that was another thing that upset me. And then as I told Galen when we were getting to know each other, my husband is a musician and had from an early adulthood done music with, with black guys and loved it and a lot of rhythm and blues and dance band stuff. And um, we were big, still are, love to dance, love music. And big, big Ray Charles fans and, oh gosh, Stevie Wonder, every, everybody, Aretha Franklin, every, all of that. So I became, as an early, I'd say an early adult, we lived in New York for a while when we were very young, 20s. And that really changed me. I was a minority um, while we lived there. And I had never been a minority. I had always just been a little blonde cheerleader. I, you know, I didn't know any difference. and. It got my attention. I loved it. I was curious about it. I'm sort of a curious person and really wanted to understand the stories of the people I was with and my own story. So I won't drag you through everything, but later I got into business and was in professional services and in banking. And just tried to, you know, <laughs> hardly any women. I was shocked when I got in there. Um, I was hired, you know, in my early 30s, so it wasn't right out of college or anything. And there weren't many women. They were all uh, secretaries. Again, I'll support people. So I just put my head down and tried to, as somebody said, tried to hope they didn't notice that I was a female. <laughs> And I wasn't a banker. That was the other thing. Not only was I female, but I was not a banker. I was not a lender. I was an HR person. I had a lot of experience from education. So I still remember a few years in that this colleague of mine, who I didn't know all that well, he was very nice. He was very analytical, just opposite of me, very analytical, very quiet. And he, he just complimented me for some reason. I don't know. And I, and I remembered thinking he complimented me for some creative idea I had come up, suggestion I had come up with. And I remember going home and thinking about that. And I thought that was when I made a very clear decision that if I'm going to stay here in this business environment, I'm going to 
bring the stuff that I have to bring. I'm not going to try to be like them. I'm not like them. They need what I bring, (laughs) which was a little bit of heart (laughs) and a little bit of caring and a little bit of good interpersonal skills and all kinds of other things. And that's what I ended up doing with my career, which was wonderful. I, I was fortunate. I worked for a, an organization called First Union Corporation, which was a, a bank in North Carolina that ultimately grew to be the fourth largest bank in the country. It's now Wells Fargo. I was not there then, but I helped it grow and learned a lot over the years. And I made a lot of contributions as well. So it was a mutually beneficial career. and. I started the diversity work. This was 25 years ago. I started the diversity and inclusion work there because I had experienced how hard it was for women to get ahead. And also, gosh, people of color, men and women of color were nowhere on the scale. And luckily, I I used my own influence and got others to influence the leaders. And we made a lot of progress in that. So that was where I really decided to step out there and see if I could influence some of the values that I had, put, put that influence in, in the bank, and I did. Uh, and I didn't do it alone. I don't mean to act like I did all of this by myself, but I was a major champion for it. So ever since then, it's always been in me. And in 2001, Catherine Heath and I founded Plain Heath Leadership, our sweet spot has always been women leaders, professional business leaders, white, black, brown, Asian. We've worked with over 21,000 women over the time and trained and coached them and watched them become empowered and find their voices and become confident and courageous. And it's been a gift in life to be given this opportunity to do this work. And then in recent years, more maybe the last five years, I went back around full circle and realized that men of color have a number of the same unique challenges that all women have. All women, for example, are challenged about finding sponsors, somebody who sort of takes you under their wing. It's usually an older white guy and uh, opens doors for you. And, And a lot of times men of color have trouble with that. Also around the issue of just emotionality, how, you know, it's okay for men to be mad and emotional, but if women cry or do anything, you know, outside the guardrails, we are seen as unstable. And I think, again, the same thing, men of color struggle with how assertive can I be? How honest can I really be? How, how much pushback can I do with this alpha male white man boss? So, so anyway, I'm just telling you all about what I'm passionate about is empowering women, all women and men of color so that more of us are at the table at senior leader levels, because I think that will change not only the companies we work for, but it will change the communities we serve. It will change our families and it will ultimately change our country. I truly believe that. So our goal and vision has always been to have a minimum, a minimum of 30% women and men of color at, at all the tables. That's 
perfect. I mean, that that is just kind of a backdrop of of what I've come to learn about you. And I, I love the fact that you said influence several times. I know you've written a couple of books, so you're you're an author. You've you've got the accolades and um <laughs> It's hell to write a book. It's hard to put on the page what you do in person. It is very hard. Yeah. One of your books, I think your latest book is The Influence Effect, The New Path to Power for Women Leaders. And I I just checked out a little bit of it, but one line that's got me captivated, which I think shows up in not only the stories that you've shared today, but some of the stories that you and I have just kind of shared in one-on-one conversations, it says, what works for men at work won't work for women. Much like wearing a business suit tailored for a man doesn't fit women. For me, that's just so visual. It brings to bear this extra effort of trying to fit into something that wasn't made for you. And, you know, you you and I have had this conversation, you know, I've also spent a long time in corporate America and um, have climbed the ladder and pursued that senior vice president of sales role and that kind of thing. And the choices that you have to make for yourself, and especially as a leader, it really does cause you to question whether or not it's worth it to bring your full self. And so I usually bring this back to just a pure business decision that if I've got folks in my organization that aren't feeling comfortable enough to bring their full self, to bring their full ideas, to help me think through all the problems that I have, not because those problems are hard, but because of something else that I'm imposing on them, that's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not getting the full value of having those folks in my organization. And I, I'm just really excited that you have been able to not only bring that to the forefront in some of the clients that you've worked with, but in some of the leaders that you've developed. Talk to me a little bit about how challenging it, it is to raise that conversation with people who are enjoying, right? They're already in senior leadership. You know, they've already climbed that space to change their organization might mean that they're losing something, but yet trying to convince them that removing barriers for people to bring their full self is not gonna cause them to lose. It's probably gonna make their job easier. It's probably gonna make their results better. It's probably going to give them access to different and new ideas, but that's got to be a tough conversation to broach with someone. How how has that been for you? Um, I do want to make one comment about the suits. You know, us women wore those suits (laughs) in the nineties. We wore these bow tie things and starchy white shirts and these boxy suits Anyway, it's awful. I'm glad I don't have any pictures of myself back in those days. Um, You know, it's interesting. I would say a couple of observations. It's very different. We talk to lots of senior male leaders, of course, when we're in their companies. And by the time they get to be senior level, 
most of them are very supportive of this idea of more women. In fact, they want more women in the pipeline. They want more women in leadership positions. Now, there are a couple of reasons that they can say this. One is they're already where they are. So they are not as threatened as some of the ones down in the, in the ranks. Also, I've noticed that men who have daughters, by the time they get to be senior level men, most of the time their daughters are getting on up there. And they begin to understand what it's like to be female and all of the extra baggage that we have. I mean, it's okay. We can handle it, but it's not the same. And they want a lot for their daughters. So that's one piece. So they, they seem to be more open. Secondly, most enlightened leaders, male and female, want to take advantage of the talent base. They know they can't afford I mean, I've had them say to me, I can't afford to not take advantage and use and the innovation and the talents of half the talent base. That's crazy. I mean, why would I do that? I've got to, got to make sure everybody feels comfortable. Now, there are occasionally times when we walk into a company or meet them by Zoom these days, and the senior leaders are not enlightened and don't feel that way, in which case we don't really want to work with them because there are too many that are ready to roll. Occasionally, this is very rare, but occasionally we will meet a really senior female CEO or senior leader who has just been one of those that's made it on her own and is pretty alpha, which is fine, but doesn't get it about other women. That's always disappointing. It, like I said, it happens very rarely, but occasionally it does. And um, I can think of a few times I've, I've tried with some of those women, and sometimes you can get through. Mostly what gets through to the biggest thing that gets through to anybody in senior leadership is to be face-to-face and hear the stories. That's what we did back at the bank in our diversity council. We had the president of the bank headed the council, and I, of course, sort of ran it, but he was very engaged. But we had lots of people, and we were focusing on gender, race, and sexual orientation. This was back in the 90s. And when you hear a black man talk about what it's like for him to go through a day and a week at the bank and things that have microaggressions that happen and same with gay and lesbian uh, transgender people talk about not being able to put their pictures of their loved ones on their desk and all that kind of thing. I saw that affect the senior leaders and the, and the president and the CEO. So the stories are, um, I, I want to tell you, this is something I just heard from a client. This was amazing. She's a head of diversity in a large company in New York. She was wanting, because it, it's always a culture change. It's got to be a culture change. It can't just be changing individuals. But she had this idea. This was before COVID. She had done some other things. They had, a, I think, an active black employee resource group, et cetera. But she had, she somehow put together this dinner and invited 56 black leaders from the company and the 10 white guys that were the head 
the, the executive leadership team. And she put each leader at a table with you know, nine or 10 black men and women who were employees at various levels. And she told them, she said, your job is not to talk. They are not here to hear from you. You are here to hear from them. And that's what happened. And she said, it was so interesting. She said, a lot of the white men sort of started, you know, with their arms crossed across their chest and not knowing what they were sort of, you know, they're not the minority usually. They were clearly the minority that night. And she said it was a breakthrough, a breakthrough that they really got to hear stories about what brought these people here, what keeps them there, what has happened that that makes them want to leave all those kinds of things. So my point is, stories are, are really powerful. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.